We live in a day when it is easy for people to look at things and point out what is wrong. We see that with our government. We see that in our homes. We see that with our young people. We see that with society in general. And it seems the longer we live and the more days that we get up, there's more critics that are out there that always are finding something wrong with something. And I think that that is also true in the church. That the church is no different and it's very easy to point out what is wrong with the church. And it's easy to concentrate on the problems that we face. And it's easy to tear it down as opposed to building it up like we should. And I'm sure and certain that there are some who would like to destroy the church. They would like to make it what they want it to be as opposed to what the Lord wants it to be. And so this morning, I wanted to remind us all of what is right with the church. And I'm not going to elaborate on a lot of things that we could say because we know that it was found at the right time by the right person in the right place. But I want us to look at some other things that show us what is right with the Lord's church. That you and I, if we're members of the body of Christ, we're a part of that church. So I want to define two words to begin with. What is the church? Well, when we talk about the church, we're not talking about the building. It's not this structure that we're looking at. And it's not any structure that any congregations of the Lord's people that they meet in. It is not man-made denominations. You can look out in the religious world today and you can find all kinds of denominations. And many of those denominations came about because someone did not like what was preached at a congregation or what was preached out of the Bible and then they went and they started something else. That is not what we're talking about when we talk about the church. And I know that there are many in the religious world that look at all of those denominations and they say that all of those denominations, even though they, one practices one thing, another practices the opposite, one says this is what you got to do to get to heaven, another says this is how you get to heaven, they're all different. And they say that all of those make up the body of Christ. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. And I want us to realize that it's also not what man decides that it will be in his own mind. There are people that I have met, there are people that have visited here, people that I've talked to over the course of time, they don't like the church. They like Jesus, but they don't like the church. They want Jesus, but they don't want to conform and live according to His will as He expects us to live in His body, the church. And so those are the things that, are, that do not make up the church. It's not the building, it's not man-made, and it's not what man desires for it to be. It is, however, the fact that Jesus, it is the church that Jesus said that He would build. In Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 14, it says, "...and they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus 
said that He would build His church. And it was built not upon Peter, but on the confession that Peter made that he is the, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. If Jesus is not who He claims He to be, then the church that we read about in the New Testament is a false church. Jesus said, I will build My church. It is something that God had planned from the foundations of the world. The church isn't some B plan. It is God's A plan. It is what God had prepared from the beginning. And so we see that the church that we all should want to be a part of is the church that Jesus said that He would build. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 24, it says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. The church that Jesus built is the church that Jesus gave Himself for. That means that Jesus died, that Jesus gave His life, that He shed His blood for the church that He built. I want to be a part of that church. I want you to be a part of that church. It is very important that we understand that that is the church that Jesus built. He gave Himself for it. And that's the example that He gives for the church and His relationship with the church as a husband and wife. How we as husbands should treat our wives. That's the example that He leaves. He gave Himself for it. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, <clears throat> the church it says there, "...and hath put all things under His feet, and gave Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all." The church is the body of Christ. Christ is the head of that church, but... We, as members of the body, those that have been baptized into Christ, those that have obeyed the Gospel, are a part of that body. And He is the head. And as the head, He has the authority to tell us how and what we're supposed to do. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47, we see that on the day of Pentecost, that when about 3,000 souls were baptized, it says in verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And so we look at the church and we realize that it was built. Jesus said, I will build. So somewhere between that statement and the day of Pentecost, that church was built. And I believe that it was created on the day of Pentecost when people were added to the church. And that's the church that we read about in the Bible. And Jesus gave Himself for it. He is the head of it. And we have no authority to change anything that He says. And so that's what we're looking at when we talk about the church. It's the church that Jesus built, the church that He died for, and the church that we read about in the New Testament. The next word I want us to look at is right. What is right? Well, I can tell you what it is not. It is not what seems right. In Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12, there is a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. In other words, there are things that may look good, there are things that may sound good, but they're going to cause us to be lost. And there are many false doctrines that are out there in the world, in the religious world, and some that are even in the church that people teach and believe and are going to be lost because they feel that it is right. I mentioned earlier that the false doubter of once saved, always saved. It sounds wonderful. Who 
wouldn't want to be a part of that? I would love to be able to stand up here and say, once you're baptized, you, you cannot. There's nothing that you can do that would cause you to be lost. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that we can be lost. And so there's a way that seems right, but in the end, is going to be destruction. It also is not what feels right. A lot of things feel good. It doesn't make them right. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, Isaiah tells us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, neither your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah is telling us that God's ways are different than man's. That God's thoughts are so much higher than man that we can't even comprehend God. Oh, we read about Him. We understand Him. But yet there are things that we just cannot explain that God can do. His ways are so much better than ours. So who are you or who am I to change what God wants us to do? And so it's not what seems right. It's not what feels right. It is, however... What is right? In Webster, Webster's Dictionary, it tells us it is being in accordance with what is just, good, and proper. That's the definition of right. The standard for right as a Christian, as a body, the church, the body of Christ, the standard for what is right is what God's Word says is just, good, and proper. In other words, if I want to be right, if I want to be righteous, I must read God's Word. I have to study God's Word. And I have to practice it. I have to put it into action in my life. Now, I've had people that will say, oh, you worship the Bible. You worship the Bible more than you worship God. And my thought there is, without this book, I wouldn't know who God is. I wouldn't know what God created. I wouldn't know what God designed. I wouldn't know what God is without the Word of God. And so I need that Word. I need that Bible. I need what He's given me to help me in this life. And so I want to ask this more. What is right with the church that we read about in the New Testament? Well, first of all, it's something that God planned. He planned it and designed it. And we read about it in the Bible. You can read about it in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. But we know in the Old Testament that it was prophesied. In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, we see a prophecy there concerning the church. In Daniel chapter 2, we see that it was prophesied about the church. So God had a plan. Now, I mentioned that some people believe that the church is God's B plan. That when Jesus first came to this earth, he couldn't accomplish what He came to accomplish, so He had to set up the church. That isn't what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that Christ was to come, the church was going to be established, it was prophesied in the Old Testament, and we need to accept it. That wasn't God's B plan, it was God's A plan. And so it was prophesied. And we know from Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 that Jesus said upon this rock, I will build My church. So He was going to do it sometime in the near future. And we see that on the day of Pentecost that that's when it took place. And we know from Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18 that He is the head of the body which is the church. 
The Scripture plainly tells us that the church is His body and Christ is the head of it. And so we need to accept what the Bible tells us about it because it's the church is Jesus' church. It's not your church. It's not my church. I've had people ask me, what church do you belong to? Is it your church? No, no, it's not my church. It's the Lord's church. It belongs to Him. And since it belongs to Him, since it's His, He built it, He died for it, He's the head of it, He has the authority to tell us what we can do in order to enter it. What does He tell us that we need to do in order to enter it? Well, in Matthew chapter 8 or 28, Verses 19 and 20, he tells us that baptism needs to be practiced. And in Mark chapter 16, 15 and 16, he tells us that belief and baptism is something that we need to practice. We know from Luke chapter 13, verses 3 and 5, that repentance is something that needs to be practiced. I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. We know from Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, that a confession is something that is very important. And it all begins with hearing the Word of God and believing those things. How could I repent if I don't even know what repentance is? How can I confess the name of Christ if I do not know who He is? Why would I want to be baptized into Christ if I don't even know what it represents? So all of it goes back to the Word of God. How do I know? Romans chapter 10, verse 17, So faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So Jesus determines how we enter the church. How do I get into His body? Because we know that in that body is where salvation's at. So how do I get in? He tells me what I need to do. All of those things that I just mentioned are, are things that need to be done in order to enter His church. We, he also has the authority to control how we worship. We sing. We pray. We partake of the Lord's Supper. We give. And we hear a lesson from God's Word. Those are things that we see in the New Testament that they practice. We practice those because we know that those were accepted by our Lord. And so again, why don't we have instruments of music? Why don't we have instrumental music? Why don't we have a piano? Why don't we have an organ? Why don't we have some drums and a band? Because we see no authority for those things in the New Testament. The Bible says sing. And it's just as simple as that. I had somebody write me a letter one time wanted to know why we don't have those things. I had other people say, couldn't you afford those things? Oh, well, yeah, we could afford them. We don't have them because the Bible simply says sing. Why not just do what the Lord wants us to do? And so that's what we do because it's His church. Not yours, not mine. We also see that He controls the life of the church. Those things that a congregation can participate in. Those things that we're supposed to do as His people. How we are to conduct our lives. Jesus controls those things. How does He do it? Once again, through the Word. Through God's Word. Colossians chapter 3, and verse 16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. We have to put God's Word in our lives. It's important that we study it. John chapter 17, and verse 17, Sanctify them through Thy truth. Thy Word is truth. You live in a world today where there are people want to say there is no absolute truth. God's Word is absolute truth. 
What He tells us in His Word is what we're supposed to do and how we are supposed to live. His Word does not change. Aren't you glad to hear that? God's Word does not change. You see, our world today, our culture, our system, a lot of things are being threatened. A lot of things are challenged, being challenged. A lot of changes people want to make. They want to go back and rewrite things, rechange things. Aren't you thankful that the Lord doesn't do that with His Word? That what we have today is the same thing that we're going to be judged by whenever that day may be? Be thankful for what God has for us. We also realize that the church is a moral beacon in this wicked world. We are the light of the world. The church is the light of the world. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14. Jesus said, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. As a Christian, we need to let Christ live in us. People need to see that there's something different about us. We can go out here in the world and we see all the problems. And it's easy, as I mentioned earlier, to point out all the problems. But we need to take the Gospel out of the world. People need to see that there's something different about us. That we have that light of God's Word in our heart. Listen to what it says in Philippians chapter 4, or 2, verses 14 through 16. Do all things without murmuring and disputing, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Now, at the time that they lived, they were living under Roman rule, but doesn't that describe our society today? A crooked and perverse nation. But look at what he says among whom, you're going to be out there among these people, ye shine as lights in the world. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in this world, holding forth the words of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. How do we shine as lights? How do we shine as lights in that dark, crooked, perverse world? By having God's Word in our heart and living it in our lives. That's what makes the difference. It is right also for the church to cry out against evil. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 11, "...and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them." Think of all the things that are happening in our world today. The Bible talks about calling evil good and good evil. That happens today every day in our society. You have people that are saying that gambling is a good thing. It helps our schools. It helps other programs. You have people talking about abortion. It's good. It controls the population. But what does the Bible tell us about those things? The Bible tells us they're sinful. And so we as Christians are to cry out against those things. We have a society today that says same-sex marriage is good. That's wonderful. It's accepting. You need to change your ways. Well, when you go back into the Bible, the Bible plainly tells us that God created man and woman. And that that's the way it was intended for a man to marry a woman. Not man to marry a man or woman to marry a woman 
or even had a multiple of them, we see that God's original intention was one man, one woman. And it was to be for life. That's God's plan. You wonder why our world is collapsing? Because we've turned away from God. And the church is pretty quiet about it. We just let it happen. Abortion. How many millions of babies have been killed because it was inconvenient for someone to have that child? That's a life. One of the things that's an abomination is shedding innocent blood. As I mentioned earlier, I've often wondered, with all the millions of babies that have been aborted, was there one of them that if they were allowed to live and grow up and mature, would, what, is there any one of them that possibly could have come up with a cure for cancer? Is it possible that any one of them could have come up with a cure for a lot of the other problems that we have in our world? The problem is we'll never know. And unfortunately, there's a lot of church members that agree that abortion is a good thing. How sad that is. Drinking. The Bible has a lot of bad things to say about strong drink in the Bible. But yet people will try to justify it. I hear about it. Well, a little bit's okay. What's wrong with a little bit? A little bit of marijuana will be fine. Why do we want to get as close to the world as we possibly can without stepping over into it? And I'm of the belief that when we dabble in those things, guess what? We've already taken that step. It's a training ground for those who want to be examples to the world of what a true Christian is. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, "...that no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity." I heard that Scripture over and over and over and over as I grew up. That was one of the things my mother was always telling me. You may be young, but you do what you're supposed to do. You be the example. Oh yeah, there's a lot of older people. Yeah, but you're young and you're supposed to be an example. I heard that over and over and over. Maybe that's why I'm here today. I don't know. But think about it. We need more moms and dads saying that to our young people. That you need to be an example. Not just an example out there in the world of doing how the world acts, but be an example of a believer in word and conversation and how you live in charity in faith, in spirit, and in purity. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Flee. There are some things that we're supposed to flee. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Flee also youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. There's some things, there are times that we need to run. 
Young people, there are times that you need to get away from it. Don't get as close to the world as you can. Stay away from it. Flee. Run as fast as you can. We've been studying in our in our forgiveness series. We talked about uh, uh, Joseph. What happened when Potiphar's wife was trying to get him to sleep with her? What did he do? Did he drop to his knees and start praying, Lord, deliver me? No, he ran. He got out of there. Oh, he left his coat behind. He ended up in prison because he did the right thing. And that's why sometimes we look at, well, I did the right thing, and oh, look at all the terrible things that happened. But look at all the good things that happened in his life later. Sometimes it's time to run. There may be times we pray. But it says here, flee. Get away from those. Do not be deceived. What does it say in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33? Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Some versions say evil companionship corrupt good manners. I wonder how many people that were out there at some of them protests that just went and said, oh, I'm just going to go and observe. I just want to watch. I want to see what's happening. And then they ended up doing things that they knew they should not be doing. I've read where some store owners have had property returned to them by some of the looters. You know what that tells me? They probably knew that they shouldn't have been doing that to begin with. Sometimes we get in trouble because we deceive ourselves into thinking that, guess what? I can do this. I can be around these kind of people. I can do these kind of things. Or they can do these things and it's not going to have any impact on me at all. And that's not what the Bible tells us. Don't be deceived. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 22, abstain from all appearance of evil. Stay away from it. Why? Because it'll have an impact on you. It'll influence you. It's God's institution for helping those who are suffering. In James chapter 1 and verse 27, pure religion undefiled before God and the Father is this to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. As God's people, we have a responsibility to be with those that are afflicted, the widows that have lost husbands, those that are fatherless. We are to visit and be with them and help them and encourage them and do what we can in their affliction. We also know that the Bible teaches us as God's people, as His family, that we're to care for the sick and the poor and the brokenhearted. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19, and the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captive, and recovering the sight of the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. What was he reading? 
Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath appointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek, to help. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. We have a responsibility to be out in the world and help those that need help. The Gospel of Christ is the answer. It is the answer to the poor. It is the answer to the sick. It is the answer to the brokenhearted. You say, well, uh, when you obey the Gospel, are you going to be rich? Maybe not in this world's goods. You may be poor when you hear the Gospel. You may obey the Gospel and you may still be poor, but you're going to be the wealthiest person in the world because you have, spiritually speaking, you've obeyed the Gospel and you have a home in heaven. What more could you want? You might be sick physically, but that Gospel is a cure for spiritual sickness if you'll obey it. There are people that are brokenhearted, brokenhearted over sin, corruption, and things that happen in their life. The gospel's the answer for that. Question is, do we trust it? You see, sin destroys people's lives. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 12, and when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. Jesus is the answer. As I said earlier, you hear a lot about the white Jesus and the black Jesus. Now I'm going to say this, what I've told somebody once before, I had somebody tell me one time, you know, they had trouble thinking that Jesus was black, and I said, well, let me ask you something. On the day of judgment, when you get there and you look up, and if He's black, are you going to say... You could keep it. I don't want to go to heaven. I don't care what color he was. It's his blood that was shed, and all our blood is the same color. And Jesus died for each one of us. And if he did not die for us, then he is not who he claims to be. I try hard not to put pictures of what we portray Jesus to look like because I've always thought, I'm not quite sure He looks like what all those paintings and pictures say. But this I do know. And that is, He is the Son of the living God and that He is the Savior of the world and He died for my sins. Whether He's brown, black, yellow, green, red, purple, whatever color He is, he died for my sins. And He is the answer. He is the answer. Don't let prejudice get in your way. Don't let racism live in your heart. And yeah, there are people in the church that are racist, have racist thoughts. Don't allow that to happen. 
We are the only group that has the privilege of taking the message of salvation to the world. Jesus died for all, all of mankind. And in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. We're going to go out into the world and teach. And people that heed that message, we baptize them into Christ. That's water baptism, not Holy Spirit baptism. It's not saying this or that. It is doing what the Bible says we must do. Baptism is essential to salvation. As we said, it is essential. It puts us into Christ. Now, you can ask people. I've asked people, what does your preacher tell you you need to do? I've seen it on television. I've seen it on, heard it on the radio. I've seen it on the Internet when people say, what must I do to be saved? Or how can I be saved? What do I need to do? And I'll hear people say, pray this prayer. Say this saying right after me and then we'll pray together. Is that what Jesus said? Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. On the day of Pentecost, Peter said, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Were they speaking about the authority of Christ? They most certainly were. And in every example we see in the New Testament, baptism was essential to salvation. Do I remember whose church it is? It's not mine. It's the Lord's church. Who has the authority to tell us how to get into it? It's the Lord. Do I have the authority to change it? Well, I've heard preachers say, well, that's the way they did it way back there. We've just changed it. And I thought, who are you? Who are you to change it? It's the Son of God that said that. This is what you need to do to be saved. It's the Son of God that we're going to stand before on the day of judgment. So don't we want to take the right message, the good message? It's called good news. And if we change it, it's not the good news. Don't we want to take that message out into the world? Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ... For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 17 it says, for, there, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. It's in that Gospel message that the righteousness of God is revealed. And it was the Apostle Paul who said in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, I, am not, I have not shunned to declare unto you the, all the counsel of God. He declared the whole thing. And trust me, there's things in that book, things in that New Testament, things that we're supposed to live by that can make people uncomfortable. That they don't want to hear. But it's in there. And they need to hear it. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, For though I preach the Gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the Gospel. We need to preach the message of Jesus Christ, the Gospel that we read about in the New Testament. And finally, the church is right 
Because it's the greatest group of people on earth. Why? Because we're God's family. We're the family of God. Yeah, we might not get along sometimes. We may have disagreements, but we're family. What family does not have a disagreement every now and then? What family doesn't get along every once in a while? And say, well, mine don't get ever, ever get along. Well, maybe that's true. But even in some of those cases when there's problems or difficulties, that family pulls together. We're part of the greatest family on earth, God's family. It's where the saved of all the earth are part of. We are members that bear the burdens of each other. As we see in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we are to help each other. We are to encourage each other. There's times that we struggle. There's, some time, there's times that we may have doubts. There are times that we need uplifted and encouraged. There are times that we may need to be rebuked. There may be times that we need to be helped. There's somebody to listen. Well, maybe we need to be the one that's listening. But we're God's family. And what a blessing that is. And the church is the greatest body of people on the face of the earth. And when Jesus asked the question of the twelve, Will you also go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that Thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Where would you go? I ask, if we destroy the Lord's church, where will we go? Would, would we replace it with some man-made church? Can we create something better, a better church than we read about in the Bible? The answer is no. And the fact is that there's only one church. As many would hate to hear that out in the religious world because they believe different, there is only one church that Jesus built. And so let us always remember what is right with the church. And let us always strive to live our lives in such a way that we bring honor to our Heavenly Father. And we draw people to Him, closer to Him. And if you're not a Christian today, why not become one? And be a part of that greatest family that's here on this earth. As Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. You can do that this morning. If you need to respond to the invitation, you can come and have a seat up here on the front row while we stand and sing.